Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on end-of-life care and hospice care. Greetings, I'm Frank Ferris, here to talk with you about what I believe is one of the most important topics in organized health care, the last hours of living. The reality is, every single one of us is going to die. While you might hope to die suddenly, most of us are going to experience one, two, three, or four, maybe even more, prolonged illnesses that will make the process complicated. Within the last hours of our lives, there are many opportunities. There are also risks. Because people have little experience with dying, maybe even what they've seen on the media, it's frequently very exaggerated. You and I need to facilitate the process and help people be competent and comfortable with it, even in the face of loss of someone they love dearly. To do this, we're going to talk about three different major areas. First of all, we're going to focus on preparing for the last hours of life those tasks that we should be doing before someone loses capacity to be a decision maker. Then we're going to talk about managing the dying process. What are all the symptoms and issues that we need to carefully manage? Finally, we'll talk about what to do when death occurs. So let's begin this journey talking about preparing for the last hours of life. To do this, we have a wonderful personal story shared by Jamie Brown, a patient who was very eager to share her story so you would know what some of the issues are. She's being interviewed by Charles Van Gunten, our Vice President of Hospice and Palliative Medicine here at Ohio Health. Now, when she was being interviewed, she was 62 years of age. In her career, she'd been a special education teacher here in the preschool system in Columbus. Her story started when she aggravated her shoulder. She thought it was an injury. Unfortunately, it proved to be amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Now, in the interview, she has very advanced disease, and I will tell you, she's actually close to the end of her life. So, Let's share her story and then talk about how we could help her prepare. Well, I have to um, intensify. I have to focus on quality rather than quantity. Um, and kind of cut to the chase. I, I feel like I've become blunt excessively blunt, maybe, and I, I don't have time to waste. So did you hear? Even she said, I don't have time to waste. I have several things I need to complete before I die. Don't your patients all have this to do? You and I can be effective facilitators in this process. Let's learn how to do it more.
So now let's talk about some of the tasks that we need to help facilitate for patients who are dying. Most of us have a very rich life. Our business, our family relationships, financial affairs, property that we own. You and I are quite familiar with the concepts that we need to help people find a healthcare power of attorney for healthcare, that we need to help them think about their advanced directives to guide decision-making if they lose capacity. Some of us are thinking about guiding them related to financial planning. Do they have a business power of attorney? Very different from a healthcare power of attorney and requires an extra step and process and documentation. Are there bank accounts or, which if two people share the account means that only one needs to sign a check, or are they and, and if both people can't sign, the account is frozen. We need to make sure that the surviving family will have access to the funds. Many people have thought about writing a will, putting a trust in order, even guardianship. But are we careful and making sure all the legal affairs are in order and that they get a consultation from someone who's an expert in this area? And what about a child or maybe even an adult who's dependent? Do we have a plan for what will happen with that person or even the person's pets after the patient dies? And this could become a big issue for pets even while the patient is unwell and maybe needs to be hospitalized. Who's going to look after feeding on that pet over the process, be it a dog, a cat, a bird, or other? Now, as part of closing my life, there's a real opportunity for reminiscence. Who's going to help me think about my life story, maybe even write it down? And finally, those religious prayers, rites, and rituals. Do we know what needs to be facilitated? And is the spiritual leader or religious leader for the patient all prepared to be a part of that process? Now, clearly, as the patient's dying, there needs to be a setting of care. We need to make sure it's acceptable to the patient, the family, and the caregivers. And we need to make sure those caregivers are skilled. This all takes time to prepare, and as we'll talk about, we need to make sure we have the appropriate medications in the home. Finally, after death, what about that funeral, memorial service? Or, in fact, is the patient interested in a celebration of life before they die, bringing together family members and friends to enjoy last days and say goodbye? Finally, that gift of organ and body donation. If people want to do that and we need to raise the issue, most people are happy to give at least their corneas, if not other organs. We need to get the appropriate service involved early so the organs can be donated appropriately. That last issue, which I think most people don't think about, is how big is your digital footprint? Most of us today have passwords on our phones, on our computers, sometimes two-factor authentication. And we have many different websites where we access information and may have passwords 
even two-factor authentication, that's protecting them. My question is, what will happen to your digital world when you die? Is all this written down somewhere? And who has that login information? Many times people don't, and what we know is, by 2050, Facebook is going to be the largest graveyard in the world. Imagine that. People who didn't put this in order, and yet their pictures are going to continue to show up, and each year, if they put their birthday in, everyone's going to be reminded, it's their birthday. Is that what you want? Most of us need to think about, as healthcare workers, talking to patients and families about all these issues and really helping them to prepare. Now, the reality is, we might not be experts in most of healthcare, but the folks in hospice can help. So, a wonderful service exists in the United States that can help with this, and in many other parts of the world as well. It's hospice. Patients and families get access to skilled nursing, medical counseling, spiritual counselors who can guide them through the process, someone to answer the phone 24 hours a day and help, volunteers who can be a part of the care, and bereavement support for families for at least 13 months. Medications, therapies, medical equipment and supplies are all paid for, as well as visits from doctors. Who wouldn't want to have this for at least a few months? Let's make sure patients have the facilitators who can help them through this process and help them prepare the tasks they need to complete before they die. So to be able to access these wonderful hospice services, whether it's in the United States or anywhere in the world, we need to know how to have an effective conversation with patients and families. So many people think hospice is the dying service. They need to know what the real opportunity is. So to do this, you and I need to recognize that a hospice conversation is really just a goals of care conversation. Where we're talking about the kind of goals patients and their families have and the type of services that they would like to have, presumably at their homes or in a long-term care facility. In the United States, they are eligible when two physicians agree that the patient has a prognosis of six months or less if the illness runs its normal course and that that's more likely than not. So the first step is for us as physicians to be clear about when the patient is eligible. More effective is for us to ask the question, would I be surprised as the doctor if this patient died in the next six months? It turns out that's much more accurate. If we can say, I wouldn't be surprised, can we find value for the patient in the hospice services? And then, we need to look at the patient's goals for life and offer goals for care. To do this, the patient and the family need to understand their prognosis. We need to clearly understand the Medicare hospice benefit. You're going to listen to Charles von Gunten do an interview where he illustrates how to do this. 
You're going to hear these six steps for effective communication, as well as you're going to hear him particularly responding to emotion and paraphrasing components of the NURSE, an acronym that we use to respond to emotion. Hello, I'm Dr. Von Gunton. I'm here to talk to you about your current health care and particularly to make some plans about how best to take care of you in the future. Okay. It would help me to know what you understand from what your doctors have told you about your current condition. I understand that the medicine is no longer working mm. um, and I am not going to get any better. I'm very tired and my heart hurts. When you say your heart hurts, what do you mean by that? Uh, I, I'm. I think I have I have no energy and I feel just worn out. You seem sad to me. Well, <clears throat> I'm not really sad. I am I'm sorry that the medication if we're at that, you know, we're we've come to this part of our journey, mm. my journey. Mm -hmm. And um I guess I'm ready to just relax and and see what happens. Mm -hmm. What are you expecting? Uh, what am I expecting? Um, I'm expecting to, um, I would like to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. I would like uh, not to be a burden to my family. I would like to have the best quality of life that I can at this time. So what you've told me is the, the doctors have told you that despite everything they've done, that the heart failure is getting worse. Right. And you know that. I do. And what you're hoping for in the future is to be comfortable. Right. And to have your symptoms managed. Right. Is there anything else you're hoping for in regard <clears throat> to your family or friends or home? I just don't want to be a burden to them, mm. and I know that I can't do this alone without them. Right. Have you heard the word hospice before? I have. What does that word mean to you? Oh, it's kind of frightening in a way. Yeah. Um, I have friends who have had hospice. But I don't know a whole lot about it. I don't know um, what they could offer. When you said hospice is frightening, say more about what's frightening about it. Well, I think just the part that uh, you're going to die. Yeah. And um, that's an unknown. I think many people are frightened by that word mm -hmm. because they only hear it in the context often after someone you've known has died and someone says, oh yeah, well they had hospice care. But it really means something, I think, quite different. It's a program of a team of people helping you at this time of your life to achieve the things that you just said you wanted, oh. to be comfortable, to be at home, 
to not be a burden on your family, but to help take caring of take care of you for as long as you have left. Wow, that's a pretty big that's a lot that they offer. Well, that's usually most people's reaction. Once they learn about it, they think, why didn't somebody tell me sooner? Mm -hmm. And it sounds a little too good to be true. It does. It yeah. does. And so my goal today is to not tell you all the details. We can have somebody from the hospice program tell you and your family in more detail. My goal today was to, to introduce this concept and tell you that... I and the rest of your doctors think this is the best way to take care of you at this time of your life. Okay. Sounds good. So I think the, the best thing would be to, to make an appointment. Now I can call them or I can give you their telephone number and you can call them. And I recommend you have them see you at home. Okay. And could I include my family in this? I think that would be an excellent idea. Okay. I would like to do that, just to see what they do really have to offer. Right. And then after you have that conversation, we can get together again to talk about what you learned, and I can help you with any further questions and maybe make a decision. Okay. That as a plan. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So could you hear all those components? The patient clearly understood her situation. The patient was clear that she was approaching the end of her life. She understood her situation and her prognosis. Although she thought hospice was mm, kind of a scary idea, she liked the idea that she could get the services to help herself and her family. Did you hear Charles paraphrasing as well as highlighting the emotion? All important steps, you and I need to know how to do this effectively. It takes practice. So once we have hospice services in place, we can really begin to support patients, families, and the caregivers, who may not actually be family members. Jamie thought this was very important. Listen to why she was worried. You know, I really don't fear death because of my faith. I believe that if I can get through this hard part, then what I'm going to, what's going to come next is going to be more incredibly amazing than anything I could imagine. And even I don't have words to try to describe that. Mm -hmm. But what I am afraid of is getting from here to there. So many of our patients are just like Jamie. They actually don't fear dying they may, through their faith, believe they're going to a much better place, but they are worried about getting from here to there. So how can you help them prepare? So to effectively help families through this process, you and I need to really understand the importance of their love for each other, their desire to protect 
and make sure the patient gets the best possible care as well as their fear or their anticipation of loss. Many people have said to me, I can't imagine life without my mother. I can't imagine life without my father or my partner. We need to help people to begin that process early. And we know that if they participate in the decision-making, they understand the choices, bereavement becomes quite different. People are also driven by spiritual perspectives, particular religious beliefs. We may well need to have their spiritual or religious advisor involved early and prepared to walk with them and guide them. Many times when I've done this, we all learn that we didn't need to do all that aggressive care. We were already doing the best for the patient and the family. Of course, we need to make sure that everybody's comfortable with the setting of care and the fact that the patient will die in that setting. If it's in a home, there are many who believe they can't sell the home because no one's going to live there after someone's died there, so they don't want the death in the home. If that's the case, we need to move the patient early so we're not changing settings suddenly. And of course, assessing for complicated grief. Could it be that I really can't live without my mother or my father or that very loved person? I need to be there and watching and listening. Now another feature of preparing is making sure that caregivers who may not be family members know exactly what to do. Do they know the patient's choices? Have they heard it from the patient? Do they know the likely events, signs, and symptoms that can occur during the dying process? You and I can educate them about everything that they can anticipate. The process is very similar from patient to patient. We can give them knowledge, skills, and help them be confident to actually do the care, making sure the medications are in the home, and making sure that we as a team are able to respond quickly, either because they're anxious or because something has changed and we need to change the plan of care. And of course, throughout this process, we can be there to support them, to debrief them, to talk with them, hopefully getting them to a spot where they can really see that caregiving is a gift, not a, just a task. So for our patients who are dying in institutions, there are some more important issues we need to think about. Because the time course is unpredictable, do we have staff 24 hours a day who really know how to provide care? We need to give them the skills and make sure they're competent. As well, in our institutions, is it home-like? Are we allowing patients, families, time for privacy? We know there can be many unannounced intrusions into hospital rooms, even long-term care facilities. And what about that issue of intimacy? So many of us lie together with a partner at night, often even naked, to be together because we like it. Do we really want to be apart when we're approaching the end of life and dying? I think not. So do we allow people to have privacy, signs on the door, 
and the staff respect them? Do we teach family members how to pillow a bed so two people can get in and have spe some special close time together? Do we invite people to bring personal things into our room in the institution, whether it's photographs or maybe even it's the pets? They don't want to be separated. It may be the last time they're ever going to see them and they need to say goodbye. Of course, we need to make sure the patients in the setting in which they hope to die abrupt changes even in our institutions in the last 48 or 24 hours won't be appropriate. So, so maybe all of this needs to occur in a specialized unit, particularly in hospitals where on many wards they don't normally care for dying patients. In institutions it's often easy for us to make sure the medications, equipment and supplies are there, but we do need to regularly review the plan of care because things can change quickly. Let's make sure everyone is comfortable. Now, to do all this, you may actually want to draw the room in which you wish to die. I recommend you get a piece of paper, you draw these five simple lines, and you think about what's in your room. Do you really want to be an empty hospital room? Or would you like to be at home? Some people even say to me, I want to be outside. One of our learners, Emily, very kindly agreed that we could share her picture. It really illustrates all the possibilities. I would like you to think about this and do the exercise for yourself. Maybe even do the exercise with each of the patients and family members that you're working with. It can be evocative. So if we ask, many of our patients are interested in actually planning their funeral, their memorial service, or even a celebration. Jamie had ideas about that. Let's listen to her perspective. Uh, oh, I know one of the things in terms of business was that probably three months after I was diagnosed, I went to make my um, funeral arrangements. Mm -hmm. And I did that in a business-like manner. And I wasn't afraid. It was just the next thing to do in this process and so I went to the funeral home and got it all arranged and um, am continuing to to build on that because that's important to me to have a, a real celebration of life service and I think when I continue the planning process, um, it will be something that I want to have comfort my family and friends and to kind of reflect who I, who I am and, and bring positive and fun memories and talk about my my faith and and I chose my little niche in the 
columbarium at my church. So for her, it was important to have a real celebration of life. She wanted to be with family members even more important than the funeral and the memorial service. That is so important for many people. They want to have the opportunity to say goodbye. Ira Bayok, in his book Dying Well, said there are five things that people need to say before they die to a loved one. I love you. I hope you love me. I forgive you. I hope you forgive me. And goodbye. And in many ways, they want the family member to say exactly that back to them. Now, from my own personal experience, I think they missed one important idea. The idea that the person who's dying can actually empower the survivor. So many times when I meet a partner who's bereft, they still have a wedding ring on. I ask them, what does that ring mean? Because in their vows, they said, until death do us part, some of them will say, oh, it's a wonderful memory of what happened. Others will say, well, I'm married. Nothing to do. I'm still married. But are they? So if you believe that when the person dies, the relationship is finished, and not everybody does, there are certain religious perspectives that would say you're married forever. Great, we need to understand that as caregivers. The professionals need to facilitate appropriately. But if the reality is that they will no longer be married, and in fact, you would hope that the surviving person would have a new life, can the person who's dying actually give permission? Maybe saying words like, I will love you always. I hope you will never forget me. Please find a new partner and have a very successful life. This can be so empowering, giving the person who will survive permission to move on and rebuild their lives. All of this preparation that we've talked about takes a lot of work. Most people don't know how to do it. As healthcare workers, you and I need to help them prepare long in advance of the actual last hours when the patient may no longer have capacity. Let's do it effectively. It can be magical, both for the patient as well as the family who will survive. So we've been talking about the process to help patients, families, and caregivers prepare for the end of life. Let's transition to now talk about how to actually manage the dying process. To do that, you and I need to clearly identify through signs and symptoms that the patient is actually dying. I'd like you to watch this video of Alice, a 79-year-old lady with advanced cancer from her breast. She's had an aspiration pneumonia and she's clearly on the edge of actually dying. As you watch the video, listen for the signs of the dying process and please make a list. What are the issues that you and I, as healthcare workers, we need to clearly manage during her last hours of life to make her dying process as comfortable and safe as possible? She's just not even responding. She's just been laying here. She's been sleeping all day long and mm -hmm. 
um, she made some kind of weird noises in her throat mm -hmm. and just really scared me. Yeah, I understand. So what I understand you to say is that over the past few days that she's been weaker yeah. and that she's been sleeping more, although she's had periods when she's been awake and mm -hmm. she's been able to eat and drink a little bit yeah. and take her medicines, but the day that you haven't been able to wake her up. And her hand, I mean, her hand has just been like really cold. Well, I noticed the changes in her hands too. Mm -hmm. um, I noticed they're more cool mm -hmm. and they're a little bluish. Um, when I feel her pulse, it's quite weak. Mm -hmm. It's very thready. And when I watch her breathe, I see that it's very shallow. Mm -hmm. You notice it's just very gentle. Mm -hmm. So I think what I'd like to do is examine her, and then maybe you and I can, and Maureen can talk about what I think is going on in the living room. Would that be all right? Okay. Well, Melissa, Maureen and I came over because of the changes in your mother. And Maureen's mm -hmm. been your hospice nurse for the last several weeks. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what you're making of what we're seeing with your mother today. Well, I feel kind of confused because mm -hmm. I thought that she would just keep going on the way she has been, but now she really seems different, like mm -hmm. things aren't right. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of worried, you know, if if she can't eat, then she's going to just get worse, and I don't want her to just get worse, so... I mean, maybe we need to give her, you know, an IV or something like that. Mm -hmm. We could do an IV, mm -hmm. but I don't think it would make her better. I thought maybe you would say something like that. Did you? Yeah. Melissa, I'm afraid your mother's dying. I'm not sure exactly, but she may be dying in a day or two. Like that soon? It could be. So, no matter what we do now, it's not going to help? No, I don't think anything we can do can stop her from dying. With the changes that we're seeing today, the changes in her breathing, the changes in her hands, makes me think that her body is shutting down. What can I do to help her? Well, I think it's important for you to remember that there's a lot of things that you can do for her. And mm -hmm. some of them you've already been doing. You've been keeping her mouth clean with the swabs that you've been using. Mm -hmm. And you've been making sure that her skin stays clean and dry. Mm -hmm. And you're going to continue to do those things. Mm -hmm. You can turn her on her side and put a pillow at her back for some support. Mm -hmm. And that will help some of the secretions that you've been hearing in her throat drain out. So I, th I think it's important for you to know that you're doing all the right stuff. Okay. I thought that I would have more time with her or something, I guess. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's why many people feel it's never the right time. Yeah. As Maureen said, you've been taking a wonderful job taking care of her. Mm -hmm. As you know, she said that she wanted to be comfortable and she wanted to die in her own home in her own bed. And you're helping her do that. Is she in any pain? I don't see any signs of pain. Okay. I think if she is, if she seems like she's in pain, if she's grimacing, um, you can still give her some of the liquid pain medicine just inside her mouth, okay. inside her cheek. Will people help me with this? Well, I can contact the social worker at hospice, and he can make some phone calls, and we can certainly get some caregivers in here to help you out. That way you can just continue to be her daughter. 
loving her and not giving her 24-hour care. Okay. So I agree with Maureen. There are many things that we can do for her right now. I think she can hear you. I think she mm -hmm. can feel your touch. Mm -hmm. Most people are afraid of dying alone and dying in pain. I think you can assure that neither of those things happened to your mother. That's a lot. Okay. What other questions do you have for us? I guess just to know that you'll be there. I may not be able to see your mother again before she dies. You can certainly get me by phone, and Maureen can get me by phone. But the hospice team is going to be able to be here to help you and your family through this. I'll be sure to give you a call, and so we can follow up. Okay. Okay? So I hope you can hear in the video some of the clear signs of the dying process. Alice clearly has a decreased level of consciousness. In fact, we would call that a hypoactive delirium, wouldn't we? Changes in her breathing pattern, it's very shallow. Some buildup of secretions, which are the result of her loss of ability to swallow. And if you actually test, she won't have a gag reflex. Eventually, she may actually get loss of control of her urine, maybe even her stool, as she gets loss of sphincter control. If we were to look, she probably also has cardiac output failure, changes in her heart rate, her blood pressure, with some venous pooling and modeling, that bluing we see along our surfaces, or cyanosis in our nail beds, in our lips. And if we were to touch her, as you heard, some peripheral cooling, she doesn't feel the same temperature. Loss of cardiac output failure also leads to renal failure. We don't put out as much urine. We may end up with very small volumes, what we would call oliguria, or no urine output, anuria. All of these signs, when we put them together, are clear to us that this patient is now not just with advancing illness, but actually dying. We need to recognize that change and manage the situation carefully. To help us along the path, a wonderful nurse colleague actually did a research project inquiring what do people see as the patient approaches the end of life and developed these two reference cards that we provided to you. Changes that she observed in the patient in the last weeks, days, hours, minutes, close to the end of life, changes in the psychological, social, spiritual matters that people describe the way they think through the process and changes that the family often goes through. I hope what you'll do is put all of these concepts together to really understand when patients are dying and we need to transition to manage the issues that arise very differently. So what are some of those changes? Well, clearly people get increasing weakness and fatigue. Their appetite decreases. Their fluid intake drops. They may get changes in the perfusion of their skin and actually some areas of clear ischemia and skin breakdown. I've already described the cardiac and renal changes as well as the neurological changes that are signs of the dying process. And we need to understand how pain changes as well as address the issue of, my goodness, some of these people can't address, can't actually close their eyes. How do we interpret that for families? Because that may be very scary.
Let's talk about that in more detail. One of the really big issues that really distresses patients and families is increasing weakness and fatigue. You can imagine for a patient with ALS like Jamie, it was very distressing. Let's hear what she had to say. I've also learned with this disease for me, losing hand function first. I, I really can't allow myself to cry. So maybe that's part of your sensing that I am not emotional or I, and when I say I can't allow myself to cry, I mean that uh, because crying involves tears and I can't wipe away my own tears uh, means uh, runny nose and I can't wipe a runny nose and I can't breathe and so it's kind of dangerous and uncomfortable and messy to, to cry. Can you imagine a situation where it's actually dangerous to cry? Because you can't wipe your eyes and you can't deal with your secretions? What an awful place to be! But can you also imagine that the patient who's dying can't do that either? They can't move their arms. They, they just don't have the energy. We need to be there to care for them. People experiencing the dying process often have marked decrease in their ability to move to the point where they can't. And we need to provide care 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, on the surface, that looks like, well, I just need to look after the patient. But the reality is, if you go and lie in a bed for 30 more or more minutes and you don't move, you're going to get very sore joints and muscles. We have a proprioceptive nervous system that's built in that tells us to move. It causes us, if we don't move, to start to experience discomfort, and it pushes us. Every one of us, when we sit in a chair, we're always fidgeting, aren't we? Or if we're on a bed, we're always rolling back and forth. So for the patient who's not able to move themselves, the caregivers need to learn passive range of motion. If we simply move their limbs periodically and turn them, they will not experience discomfort and, and pain. And of course, behind all this is the increased risk of pressure ulcers. So turning becomes very important. What I like to say is every 30 to 45 minutes, we need to give the patient a massage on the surface that's up, some nice cream, some nice touch. We then turn them to the other side and we give a nice massage with some cream and good touch on the other side. Now you notice I didn't say every two hours because the reality with hypovolemia, the perfusion of the skin is going to be reduced. And if we don't turn the patient every 30 to 45 minutes, they can get very rapid skin breakdown. And that can be both painful as well as smelly, as well as very distressing for family who are watching. So this is really important for us to look after. Let's pay attention to it as much as we possibly can.
An even greater problem, particularly for families, is decreasing nutrition and fluid intake by the patient. Of course, the patient might be distressed as well, but everybody sees the message. This person is not doing well, and if they can't eat and drink, they will die. So what's the reality? Well, this creates huge amounts of fear, doesn't it? People often project on the patient that they're giving in, that the patient's going to starve, when in fact, what you and I know is a sense of hunger and drive actually comes from changing insulin and other hormonal levels. When we eat food and our insulin goes up, we lose our appetite because, in fact, we're feeling satiated. When the insulin level and other hormones drop, we get hungry again. If someone's actually not eating, maybe some of you have done a fast for two or three days, your appetite goes away. So you're not hungry, you're not starving to death. Although you may be losing weight, as we talked about, a loss of appetite, the anorexia, and the cachexia. So you and I need to teach family members that food can actually be disgusting for the patient, the best way I like to do this is to turn to the patient if they're able to communicate with me and say, if you could eat a good meal, would you like to be able to? And all the patients nod and say, yes, I would, but I don't like the food now. I don't like the smell. I don't like the taste. Please don't push it on me. What we also know is, in the face of the dying process, the anorexia may actually lead to ketone production, which can actually be anesthetic in nature and may be protective. We also know as people lose their ability to swallow, they're at high risk for aspiration. And what you don't want to do is put something in the patient's mouth and suddenly it's in their airway going up and down and you can hear them gurgling, but you're never going to get it out. I've actually had that happen with family members and they actually thought they'd killed the patient themselves. It was a horrible place for them to remember the experience. Of course, the other thing that can happen, and I've seen this many times, is patients still actually maintain a level of control. They clench their teeth like this. We try to feed them, and they still have their teeth clenched. It's the last way a patient can maintain control. We need to teach families not to push, and we need to help them find alternate ways to provide care. So what I like to say is, let's move the, the family away from the head of the bed. Let's move them down to the feet. Let's get them busy providing massage, providing skin care, reading, talking and reminiscing, all those wonderful things that can be a part of the process of preparing for the end of life. Food and nutrition isn't going to help. The other fear that people have is, well, my goodness, if they don't drink, they're going to get dehydrated and thirsty. What we need to remind people is that actually dehydration isn't what causes the distress. Again, the dehydration may enhance the level of protection through endorphin release as well as those ketones. And the dry mouth is actually what makes someone thirsty particularly when patients are sitting there in bed mouth breathing. I'm sure you've seen it. How long does it take before you dry out and feel thirsty? And what we need to actually help people do is rehydrate the patient properly. When they're not able to take a lot of fluids, it's different. When they are able to take fluids, 
don't just give them free water. Recognize that coffee, tea, and alcohol are actually diuretics. They need fluids with some chloride ion. Is it salty soups, sport drinks, or maybe some of the red vegetable juices? But eventually they're going to stop taking these as well, aren't they? So what becomes important is for us to recognize the changes of cachexia as well as the neurological changes. When patients' albumin fall, falls below 2.5 grams per deciliter, and that's a normal part of cachexia, fluids don't sit in the vascular space properly. They often leak out into the peripheral tissues. The weakest peripheral tissue is actually the alveoli, if we give them more fluids, they may actually get a lot of peripheral edema, maybe pulmonary edema. They may get a lot more coughing, secretions, and even breathlessness. So we need to examine the patient. Is their total body water normal? For many of these patients, it's actually above normal initially because of the accumulation of those interstitial fluids, ascites, and peripheral infusions. And for us to give them more fluid, it wouldn't stay in the vascular space. Parenteral infusions are not a good idea and may be very harmful. What can we do? Well, you and I can address the issue of dry cracking lips, dry mouth. I suggest a simple baking soda mouthwash offered every 15 to 30 minutes to clean the person's mouth out, particularly if their mouth is open. You see the very simple formula a teaspoon, I should say, or five mils of baking soda, a teaspoon or five milliliters of salt, along with a quart or liter of water. You can reuse it over the days, weeks, as long as you keep the cap on it. And then, of course, maintain oral hydration, maintain protection on the lips and naris, a little bit of Vaseline or another petroleum-based protective lip product can drop the evaporation prevent the drying and cracking. This can be so helpful. Now, we all know there are some families that absolutely insist on we need to have intravenous fluids. So what can you and I do safely? For them, it's the symbol of the IV bag hanging and the drip, drip, drip. They don't understand the rate, most of them. What we do know is every patient will lose perspiration and respiration, about 500 milliliters in 24 hours. If they have a fever, it will be higher. So we can actually give them about 500 milliliters of fluid in 24 hours or 20 milliliters per hour quite safely. And clearly, if someone has some urine output, we could also replace that. This can help calm the family because they feel like something's being done and help the patient not get fluid overloaded. The last piece that you and I need to recognize is this decrease in cardiac output, the tachycardia, the hypotension. Families will feel the cooling. They'll see the cyanosis, the modeling of skin. They'll notice the urine output is decreasing. What we need to do is make sure families really understand why this is happening, the patient's dying, and that parental fluids will not change it, may actually just make it worse. By doing all this, families can actually mostly come to terms, and if we really need that drip, 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 we can do a little bit of theater.
to make sure they're comfortable and we won't harm the patient. So useful. One of the largest changes that's a part of the dying process is neurological dysfunction. Whether it's loss of ability to swallow, changes in breathing, which if they're new are both pathognomonic of the dying process, decreasing level of consciousness, that agitated or hypoactive delirium, and of course family's concern about communication with the patient who can't respond to them. They just get distressed. So Jamie had a lot of issues with loss of ability to swallow. Let's hear her story. Lots of times it's, it's scary. Um, I've I've had a lot of trouble with with the mucus in my throat that is often present with ALS. And I heard about air hunger, that feeling of suffocation and not being able to breathe and now I know what that's like because lying in bed at night with my, my arms totally paralyzed and under the covers, I can still move my fingers a little bit, but I can't do much with moving my head and I have to be able to reach the call light. So I've often been panicked and terrified when I feel that in my throat and I don't have the muscles in my throat anymore to either swallow it down or cough it up. Can you imagine being in a situation if you can feel a lot of mucus in your throat, but you can't clear it? When people have no gag, they're not coordinating those 50 muscles that are responsible for swallowing, and they're often panicked. What a horrible situation. Neurologically, what's happened as we look at this system, the cranial nerves, 9 and 10, which are responsible for us feeling something is in our throat and then activating this motor system are really quite low down in our medulla. When we think about the dying process, which starts in our upper brain and moves down, this is very advanced. If patients can't clear their secretions, they are not going to survive. This is a fundamental reflex essential for life. Now, what can you and I do? Uh, clearly, if they get saliva and secretions building up, and the majority of them actually come from our lungs and are in our trachea, we can use postal drainage. Pas put the patient in the Trendelenburg position, turn them on their side, and hopefully the secretions will start to move, because they don't have the ability to cough the way you and I do. Positioning might help. Suctioning, particularly when the secretions are down below larynx, unlikely to help. What can you and I do to actually prevent it? We can use an anticholinergic. Our favorite is either glycopyrrolate or scopolamine. 
You can see our recommended dosing, or you can use a scopolamine patch. They're relatively low dose, but we could use two or three patches. These will take some time to work, but they can prevent the buildup of secretions, that gurgling, that noise that families hate, often interpreting as the patient is choking. Please do something about it. It's all about theater, again, because the patient may be unaware of it, but you and I need to manage it very carefully. Another key issue in the dying process that we've already highlighted that's pathognomonic of the fact that the patient is dying is changes in their ability to breathe. We know that breathing is controlled by our lower part of our brainstem, pons and medulla. It's a complex process of sensing inputs from our periphery as well as changes in oxygen and carbon dioxide levels and then causing us to breathe. We've highlighted some of this in the dyspnea module. What occurs in the last hours of life are very specific changes. The patient doesn't breathe as frequently, what we call apnea. Decreasing tidal volume, where we know they're not ventilating enough. They're just not moving oxygen. Chain-Stokes respirations, those very specific breathing patterns where the patient has apnea and then has what I would call catch-up breaths. You need to be able to demonstrate them with apnea followed by more apnea. Often inter interpreted as the patient is gasping for air. We often see accessory muscle use and then finally, we may see those what I would call agonal breaths or last reflexic breaths. Huge gaps that can be a minute, a minute and a half apart, and there's another breath. And everybody watching is in agony. If you can't breathe, you're just not going to survive. What this raises is fears of breathlessness, fears of suffocation, we need to support the family, but we need to make sure the patient is comfortable. Our best choice is going to be to use opioids in very low dose, as we've highlighted in our dyspnea module. And we need to really question the use of oxygen. Is it actually going to reduce the patient's potential sense of shortness of breath, or will it actually prolong the dying process and make it more agony for the patient the family, and the caregivers. Let's hear what Jamie had to say about the use of morphine. So it's, it is important to use. I mean, I never thought that I would be using drugs like morphine, but it really does help. And it helps relax the throat muscles. It helps me to relax and not tighten up further and the working muscles I have. It helps with pain. It helps put me to sleep. So I hope you can hear 
that even for Jamie, just like it was important for Ellen in our dyspnea module, morphine actually relieved her sense of shortness of breath. And as we've historically described, it's most often very low dose, five or 10 milligrams of oral morphine every four hours is all it takes to do it, with the option of a breakthrough dose if the patient needs more. So Jamie shared her story. She was eager to share her story. Can you imagine, or even be surprised, that actually one week after this interview, to everybody's surprise, Jamie died. I personally think people in fact, make decisions about when their business is done and they let go. And this was yet another example of how I, you, the patient, can even control the end of our lives. Imagine that. So an issue that's part of the dying process that can be extremely distressing for patients, families, and caregivers is terminal delirium. We've already talked about these two roads to death that can occur. Fortunately, most of our patients go down the usual road, and my experience is it's 70 to 80% of patients that experience a hypoactive delirium. They simply lose consciousness, become semi-comatose, comatose, and die. But there is 20 to 30% of patients who go along the difficult road getting confused, agitated, maybe experiencing hallucinations, bad dreams, if it's really serious, myoclonic jerks, and even seizures. And I don't know whether you've ever had a patient die having a seizure. It is a horrible experience for everyone. So let's talk about how to manage the hyperactive, that difficult road. We've seen it. We know what's involved. Let's think about the situation for the patient. If the patient wasn't dying, we might be able to reverse this. But because the patient is actually dying, we're seeing signs of the dying process, this is irreversible. Our goal is going to be to simply saddle the patient, and the best way to do that, for most people, will be benzodiazepines Occasionally, we'll use barbiturates or propofol as a backup when those benzodiazepines don't work. And of course, we're going to need to support the patients, the family, and the caregivers throughout this process. We indicated previously that for reversible agitated delirium, benzodiazepines are not appropriate, particularly because they create amnesia through the inhibition of short-term memory. But they're perfect for this situation. Not only will they reduce the agitation, sedate the patient, inhibit short-term memory so the patient won't remember any of this, but they will relax their skeletal muscles, and they're the perfect prevention for a grand mal seizure. They're an excellent anticonvulsant. And I just remind you that that moaning and groaning which may be very distressing, maybe you've heard it, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh. it's just exhalation and closure of the vocal cord muscles, which happen to be skeletal muscles. 
These benzodiazepines will relax those muscles and stop that vocalization. They're perfect for this situation. Now, some people have said, well, they're already on haloperidol or another antipsychotic. We could continue them. We can, but as you can see, they are not amnestics. They won't mus relax those muscles, and they're probably not anticonvulsants either. One thing I will caution you is don't use opioids. The sedation that comes with opioids is a side effect. You have to go to high dose to get sedation. They're not indicated. They won't create amnesia. They won't relax the skeletal muscles. And if the medical examiner was to see sudden use of opioids in this situation, it might raise all sorts of questions. Opioids are for pain, not for delirium. So what do we do? You've seen this formula before. We're going to titrate to effect, starting with one milligram of oral or buccal mucosa lorazepam every one hour as needed, calling the doctor if three doses are ineffective and I would double it. There aren't any clearance concerns, and I typically find I'm using two to 10 milligrams of lorazepam every 24 hours, and I settle most hyperactive delirium. Now, you may be saying, yeah, but the patient can't swallow, so I could administer it against the buccal mucosa. Take that one or two milligram lorazepam tablet, take a three milliliter syringe, take the plunger out, place the tablet in the syringe, put the plunger back, drop a milliliter of water, a milliliter of air, shake until it dissolves, and then use a gloved hand, place the liquid against the buccal mucosa, and spread it with your gloved finger across the mucosa, never passing your fingers through the patient's teeth. Sometimes if we put our fingers through the teeth, they get a gag reflex, or they may have a reflexive bite, and if they break your skin, we've got a second patient. So make it simple. Patients are typically on a 30-degree angle. The medication trickles around. Part of it's absorbed through the buccal mucosa. Part of it will be absorbed through the oral mucosa. Some of it will go into trachea. Some of it will go into esophagus. It works really well. I've been using it for over 30 years this way. Now, of course, if the patient has a line or you've got subcutaneous access, we could use midazolam. A, lo a loading dose, as I've indicated, followed by an infusion is perfect. Uh, or we could use bolus dosing if we're in the hospital but that needs to be administered every couple of hours. I've given you the card. The formula for both are right on the delirium management card under the irreversible delirium. I hope you will look at it carefully and follow it. It works really well. Now, of course, some people have said to me, oh my goodness, are we hastening their death? No, we are not. One of the features is our intent guides legal judgment. So our intent is to simply titrate to effect using that catch-up technique we've been teaching you. We dose only as needed until the patient is settled, so the dosing is likely going to be low, or we're going to change to alternate medications. And the pharmacology also helps us. Every medication has an LD50 
which stands for the lethal dose in 50% of the rats when the dose is given acutely, you can see the numbers are huge. For lorazepam, the LD50 is 4,500 milligrams per kilogram. Midazolam, it's 215 milligrams per kilogram. Typically, I've said I use 2 to 10 or 20 milligrams of lorazepam. And personally, if the patient has not previously been using midazolam, the most I've ever used has been 5 or, on one occasion, 10 milligrams of midazolam, even for a compassionate extubation. The doses are much less than the dose required to kill the patient. These people are dying of their disease. We've seen signs of the dying process. We're helping them get comfortable. Nigel Sykes, who was at St. Christopher's Hospice in London, also did a comparison comparing patients where the symptoms were settled and patients where they were not settled. Which group do you think died faster? In fact, the stressed patients with uncontrolled symptoms die faster. It's quite a lovely paper available to all of us. Of course, in this process, you might say, well, we're creating amnesia. This patient is dying. I want the amnesia. I want to settle them. I'm not worried about hypotension. I'm not worried about respiratory depression. These patients are dying. Now, occasionally the benzodiazepines don't do what we hope they will do. In some patients, they get even more agitated. So we have a backup strategy, and there's a literature on the use of propofol or phenobarbital in this patient population, and on our reference cards, we provided you with a dosing guidance for that. My take-home message is these patients could well be suffering. We must control the agitation, the phonation, that moaning and groaning. We need to settle them quickly, and the benzodiazepines are absolutely perfect for this. So fortunately, most patients actually lose consciousness, become unresponsive, what we would call hypoactive terminal delirium. You've seen the pathway. It's what we call the usual road, and 70 to 80 percent of our patients go down this path. What bothers the family members is the fact that they can't talk to the unresponsive patients, and they may get very distressed. We've had many, many family members say, can't you just wake them up? We need some more time together. Well, part of what we can explain to folks is that the patient's awareness may be greater than their ability to respond. We know that in our brains, the area that actually processes hearing is different from the area that processes information and is different from the area from which we respond. We typically lose our ability to respond, but we may still be hearing and even processing. We've seen many patients who can't talk to us, but if they're listening to a difficult conversation, they may get agitated. We see their heart rate, their blood pressure change. They are listening to the conversation. We've also seen patients who are waiting for someone to arrive from out of town. And when they arrive, the patient settles. You can see their body settle. They clearly know the person's in the room. And many of them, a half an hour, hour, couple of hours later, actually let go and die. Even though they may have been hanging on for days or even a few weeks. It's amazing. 
we can begin to understand if the person is actually cognitively aware or not. It's a long-standing anesthesia practice before surgery starts to actually look for loss of the eyelash cordial reflex. You and I know that this is coming the sensory limb is cranial nerve 5, the motor limb cranial nerve 7, and our pons. So again, as our brain is becoming dysfunctional, we spare our brain stem. If pons isn't working as part of the dying process, the patient is probably not got much cognitive function. So we can use the eyelash reflex to see if the patient is aware or not. What can we do? We can always assure family that they can assume the patient hears everything, include the patient in the conversation, create that familiar environment, assure the patient of touch, presence, safety, actually be a part of the process with the patient, include the children, the dogs, and play music the patient enjoys. I once went into a home and everybody you could feel was walking on eggshells. The home was absolutely quiet. And I said to this family, who is this man? Tell me the story. And they said, oh, well, he was quite gregarious and he was actually an Irish Toastmaster. And I said, what? Why are you all so quiet? Let's get him involved in an Irish wake. Well, it was the permission. In came all the family. They started the party. And the man died quite peacefully in the next few hours, surrounded by the love and his friends. And I'm sure he was interacting with them, at least in presence. The other thing that we can do is teach family members to give the patient permission to die. I've already highlighted the patient who's hanging on, waiting for a loved one to arrive from out of town. They may need to hear from each person in the family that they're okay if the patient dies. The patient may even be protecting the loved one who's simply not ready for the death to occur. We're going to need to teach families how to do that. What I like to suggest to them is sit down, say the first words, assuring the patient that you love them and that you forgive them. Remember those five things people need to say and even my sixth State their preparedness for you, the patient, to die. Give them permission to die and say goodbye. And we may need each key family member to come in and do that. What I have seen many times is after that process is complete, often the patient does slip away in the next few hours. We have to teach people. Now, of course, the question is, in this hypoactive delirium, are people still suffering if you've watched our video on delirium screening, you will have seen the video of the woman who actually woke up after a reversible hypoactive delirium, and she was really suffering, not knowing who was around her, real paranoia, real fear. She wanted to call the police. She thought about killing herself. Is that happening for the dying person? Well, sometimes they may be very quiet, and occasionally you get a sense they're quite happy, but sometimes we get that sense they're not. They may be having bad dreams, nightmares, hallucinations, even paranoia, and they may not be able to show that to us. I would ask you, 
and I ask you, do you ask your patients, would you like to experience the dying process completely, even if it was a hypoactive delirium, almost everybody says to me, no, give me some of that good stuff. I want to be unaware. A little bit of benzodiazepine will help. Now, I want to be clear, we do need to ask people because there are some folks with religious perspectives, particularly Buddhists, who would say, I need to experience the death, I need to experience the crossover process, don't give me medications. But not every Buddhist will say that, you need to ask and be clear what individual choices are. So this is part of by helping people to prepare in that advanced care planning is if you get agitated, restless, or you're having bad dreams or nightmares, you want to experience them, most people will say no. A few people will say, hmm, not sure. A few people will say, yes, I do need to experience them. So again, although this is the usual road, this is completely irreversible. The question is, do we need to give medications? The patient is very pleasant. Maybe they're seeing mother and father or the dog coming to get them. I won't necessarily, but if I perceive some suffering, again, very low-dose benzodiazepines will really help to ensure amnesia. Lorazepam, titrated to effect and then given routinely in very low dose, can be really effective. So as you and I carefully manage the dying patient, we need to be aware of a few other issues that can be very concerning and require attention during the last hours of life. The first is the issue of pain. The question is, what does the patient experience? Many fear that pain gets much worse. Many will actually correlate that moaning and groaning to the patient is having terrible pain. But is that actually true? What you and I can do is assess the unconscious patient. Maybe we're going to use the pain ad or another tool which allows us to observe the patient. Are they grimacing? Do they have other facial expressions? Is this actually distinct from terminal delirium? My experience is most of the time the forehead is actually clear, there's no grimacing, and the moaning and groaning is actually the delirium. In addition to that, think about the experience of pain. We've described it as an external stimulus leading to transmission, perception, modulation. What do you think is happening to perception during the dying process? I think frequently as the cortex is dying, we're not probably experiencing it in the same way. There's no reason for there to be more stimulus from the periphery, particularly if we're carefully looking after the patient's skin and other issues. My guess is pain is probably going to be the same or less during the dying process. So important that we don't necessarily manage that moaning and groaning with opioids. It can make it worse. We need to assess the patient. That's one of the reasons for the team to be able to come and see the patient if needed. Now, what about loss of ability to close eyes? Another key issue for people, and they often will get freaked out because they see the conjunctiva, the whites of the eyes, clearly visible. What we know 
is this is not a neurological deficit because many of those patients actually have rotated their orbits up and you can't actually see their irises in the space that's open. In fact, it's coming from loss of the retroorbital fat pad, a part of cachexia. Those four muscles are still pulling the orbit backwards and now the eyelids don't close because there isn't enough eyelid for them to actually oppose. What's the problem? Well, it's not distressing the patient until they actually get a dry eye. Have you ever had a dry eye? I have, and it's extremely painful. So we need to maintain ocular moisture. They're not blinking the way they used to. They may not even be tearing the way they were used to. We could use some artificial tears, but those will evaporate very quickly. Much better will be for us to use ophthalmic lubricating gel every four hours. You need to prescribe it so they have it in the home in anticipation. And what about skin care? Well, I highlighted it early. We've got that position fatigue issue and we need that range of motion, but we also need to turn the patient every 45, 30, 45, 60 minutes, and we need to pillow them effectively. You heard me say that what I like to do is massage the part of the skin that's up, turn the patient, and then massage the part of the skin that's come up in order to stimulate blood flow. It really helps protect the skin. Many patients will be put on pressure-reducing mattresses. Those can really help, but they may not be the only thing that prevents skin breakdown. This is a wonderful task for family. They need training, but when they know how to do it, they actually do it quite effectively. And they get a lot of sense of giving a gift. That's very important. We mentioned loss of sphincter control. This can be a neurological problem. Again, distressing to family members who are watching as urine or stool is flowing. It's a part of the skin care that we need to provide to make sure patients remain dry. Now, some people say, well, let's get a urinary catheter in. Personally, as patients were becoming oliguric or aneuric, I prefer to use absorbing pads and other surfaces like that and simply keep the patient dry. Some patients don't even have another bowel movement. We don't need to push for it unless it's been many days and we have a sense of distension. And finally, there's one other skin change I need you all to be aware of. Karen Kennedy initially described this. It is an ulcer, typically in the sacral area, that goes from perfectly intact skin to this huge area of breakdown that you can see here in a day or two. It's probably the result of perfusion failure. It's definitely ischemia-based, progresses very rapidly, and it's prognostic. I've seen it a few times in my career, and typically once I have this level of pressure ulcer, a Kennedy ulcer, the patient will die in the next three to five days, and that has been my continued experience. So, of course, it's worrying to family members. We need to highlight for them that we're going to care for this patient carefully. Great odor control, make sure they don't have more pain. But you and I need to understand the prognostic nature of it. That's very important for family members. So we've talked about all of the critical issues that you and I need to manage as healthcare workers during the dying process as well as providing support for family members and caregivers. 
it's critical that we make sure the medications are immediately available in case they're needed. We're going to limit the medications we use to really those that are essential. Typically, we're going to have available an opioid like morphine, a benzodiazepine like lorazepam, and an anticholinergic like glycopyrrolate or scopolamine. I personally prefer the glycopyrrolate if I can use it because it has a longer half-life as well as it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. It doesn't make any confusion worse. I've also highlighted we're going to need to probably get a baking soda mouthwash to keep the mouth clean. We're going to need something for lips, and we're going to need to prescribe an eye lubricant, an ophthalmic gel. Now, better that we use the least invasive route of administration. I love the mucosa or the oral route when I can, or rectal may be appropriate for some of our patients. If we need to, we can go to subcutaneous, or if patients already have a port we can access, intravenous is going to be fine. As we've said before, we don't like to use intramuscular for any situation except the administration of medication to control rigors. I want you to remember the kinetics. Each of the medications that we're talking about here follow simple first-order kinetics. Intravenously, they hit Tmax at 15 minutes. Subcutaneously, within 30 minutes. Orally, rectally, buccimucosa, within 60 minutes. And the opioids have a half-life of four hours. Glycopyrrolates, very similar. The benzodiazepines, a half-life of 12 hours. You need to know the kinetics. It's why we're providing you with this detail on our reference cards. Please use it. Again, remember steady state occurs after five half-lives. And what's important is for us to know, are there clearance concerns? There really aren't for the benzodiazepines. There really aren't for glycopyrrolate. But there is for oral morphine. Morphine is metabolized into two products, morphine-3-glucuronide, morphine-6-glucuronide. The morphine-3-glucuronide maybe provides a little bit of analgesia, but it certainly can cause CNS excitation, whereas the morphine-6-glucuronide, it's a very good analgesic. Typically, we put it in, and we are effectively a bucket of water from the perspective of morphine, to create a nice concentration. We put it in every four hours because we pee it out every four hours. But what's happening at the end of life? People lose their ability to clear the morphine. Urine output stops. And now what I can guarantee the family? The patient will have analgesia until death, coming from the morphine-6-glucuronide, but they don't need more morphine because if we give too much, we'll cause CNX excitation and we may create iatrogenic agitated delirium, and you don't want to do that. So my recommendation for folks is, as the urine output drops, if it's less than 500 milliliters per 24 hours, reduce the routine dose by 50% or stop it. You can always use a breakthrough. And if the urine output is less than 250 mils in 24 hours, or the patient is aneuric, stop routine dosing. You don't want to be responsible for iatrogenic delirium in the dying patient. You can never reverse it.
We can always use a PRN dose. If we see grimacing, if there's a problem that looks like it's real pain, but as I described previously, I think pain perception drops and almost all patients at the end of life don't have the pain they had before. What they've already been getting will serve them perfectly. So now let's transition from what do we do to care for the patient who's actually dying to what's our role when death occurs. Clearly we don't stop providing care for the family and there are several things we need to be aware of and things we need to do. The first step is to recognize that death has actually occurred. It may be very obvious, absence of heartbeat, respirations, pupils are fixed, as the body cools, the temperature falls, the person starts to look quite waxen, muscles and sphincters may relax, body fluids may start to trickle, there can even be a release of stool and urine. Eyes can remain open, jaw can fall open. These can all be distressing, but they're actually signs the person has actually died. And of course, some folks will say, well, I just gave them a dose of medication maybe an hour ago. Did I kill the patient? I've had many nurses very worried about this. Of course, you can use the pharmacokinetics to guide if they gave the dose an hour ago and it was intravenous, they didn't kill the patient, did they? They're already on the elimination slope. If they gave the dose several hours ago, even orally, it's already on the elimination slope. And what's important to recognize is the patient died because of their disease, not because we changed the medication. So kinetics can help us help other members of the healthcare team feel comfortable. Now, there could be medical legal questions, and there are in every jurisdiction guidance provided by what we call either the coroner or medical examiner where they want to review the death. I've given you the guidance that occurs here in Franklin County where we live in Columbus, Ohio. They want to review accidental deaths, suicides, sudden and unexpected deaths, homicides, deaths for a person at their workplace, and therapeutic deaths. Each jurisdiction will be different. If you've recognized it's a coroner's case, you shouldn't move the body. But if you've recognized it's not a coroner's case, what you want to do is tell the family, don't call 911, tell them who to call, and it's a time for the family to sit at the bedside and reflect. A time for traditions, rites, and rituals. What I want everybody to recognize is even in hospitals, there are no specific rules about how quickly you and I need to move the person's body. We can take our time. We provided you with a nice guide for pronouncing death. What I like to do is, if I possibly can, is go to the bedside, sit down with the family, and I position the family opposite me on the other side of the person's body, if I possibly can, and I ask them to tell me the story. They need to get it out. They need to explain their emotions, their feelings, and what happened. It's very cathartic to do that. At the same time, what am I doing? 
I probably have my hand on the person's body. I'm watching for movement of their chest, and I'm feeling them cooling. I'm sitting there for 10, 15 minutes while they tell the story, if I possibly can. Have I just seen the person's died? You betcha. Now, I'm not going to go and stimulate them to see if they respond to pain. Maybe I'll look at their pupils, although not every pupil dilates completely. I know the person's died, but I will say to the family, please leave the room for a while. I'm going to examine the patient. And what I actually do is sit down again for myself and I spend a little time, again with my hand on the person's body, watching and reflecting. It's time for me to take in what's happened. It's time for me to recognize that I may well have had a loss. If I've been caring for this patient for a while, another separation for me. It's me time to look after myself. Of course, if I feel like I need to formally examine the patient, I will, but that's pretty rare. And then what I'll do is invite the family back in, maybe after 10 or 15 minutes for me, and say, if you would like to, let's work together to prepare the person's body for the movement. Of course, there's going to be emotion. There's going to be response. I need to listen to it all. The most important thing in the pronouncement process is actually hearing the story from the family and for them to feel supported. Clearly, after I've done that, I need to quickly complete the death certificate in some traditions. And I'll look at this as in Islam, in Judaism, it's important that the person's body be buried before sundown, if at all possible. I need to quickly complete the death certificate in order for that ritualistic process to continue and that family to feel comfortable. Of course, anticipating the death can help me prepare for all of that to make sure I have the data, but I need to get on with it quickly or know who's actually going to complete this death certificate. To delay can create huge emotional distress for families who survive the patient. Don't do it. So we've done the pronouncement. We've sat there and heard the story. We've figured out where we're going to be able to complete the death certificate. The next big step for the family is moving the body. For many family members, helping to prepare the body, ritualistic bathing, maybe choosing some clothing now or later is an important part of the process. You and I remember that rigor mortis will set in in the next four to six hours. So we want to make sure hands are across the chest, jaws up, eyes are closed. For many people, the actual movement of the body can be very traumatic. I can remember when my mother died, we spent quite a lot of time, several hours with her at the house, and then along came the folks from the funeral home to remove her, and that was another layer of distress for me. And I knew all of this. I, I was a doctor. I was practicing palliative medicine. It didn't matter. You're now taking my mother out of the house for the last time. An important part of the process will be choosing funeral service providers. An important part is how they wrap and move the body. 
I really encourage family presence for the preparation and for the movement. I also encourage that they don't close body bags. They can go down the street, around the corner, and then they can close the body bag. The important thing is to not have a sense the person is being closed up, put in the coffin right away. There's still more ritual. What's very important is this process is for family members to really realize that the death has occurred. If I can get more family members to come to the bedside before the body's moved, the better. Now, sometimes family isn't present. I don't love giving news of death over the phone, but sometimes I need to. For me, those six steps of good communication are really effective. Sit down, take deep breaths, don't rush. Of course, it's much better to do it in person. And if I can, I'll start the phone call with, there's been a change, please come to the hospital. If I can bring them to the hospital, it's much better. But if I need to do it over the phone, I use those six steps of effective communication. With whom am I speaking? Who is there with you? Give that warning shot, I have bad news. Tell them very simply, your loved one has died. And don't say, I'm sorry. You may give them sympathy. You may say, this is a very sad moment for all of us. You might want to say, we've all suffered a loss. Your loved one has died. There will be emotion on the phone. Everything from silence to real outbursts of tears. Sit there and listen. You won't be able to do more because it's, if it's only the phone, it's harder. If we're using telehealth, you may be able to see the person's reaction. If at all possible, invite them to come and see the body. And most importantly, as part of the process before you finish, determine who's the decision maker for final arrangements. This is going to be the person who's named as the executor in the person's will. That may be quite different than the person who was the power of attorney for health care. Now, it may be a few days after the body leaves. What are you, the provider, the member of the team, going to do? A follow-up condolence card or a phone call from team members or, most importantly, from the physician is both surprising as well as highly appreciated. And families feel like, oh, my goodness, they continue with me. I recommend writing out a note in longhand. One of the big surprises for me was getting a note three or four days after the death from the whole team that had looked after my mother. I didn't expect it, and I was very touched. Make a statement of what you observed about the patient, who they were. Talk about your aspect of the story with them and a statement of admiration and praise for the family and the care they provide or the love they showed. And highlight, finally, something you will always remember. I promise you, these families will keep these notes in their albums forever. And what about you? How are you going to separate? It's about your bereavement as well as theirs. In order to maintain resilience, if you've had a long relationship, are you going to want to attend the funeral? It's okay. 
people will actually be surprised that the doctor, the nurse practitioner, the team members come to the funeral, and they will be thrilled. And it may be that you just pass by either the viewing or spend a few minutes to say hello at the funeral. What's most important is we understand it's not only about our loss, but it's their loss. How am I going to follow up with family members to assess their grief reactions and provide support? If they've been on hospice care, they're going to get a whole team that's going to follow them. If they've died in the hospital acutely, it may be only you who follows them. They may need assistance with practical matters, insurance, wills, papers to be signed. Please help people quickly, but most importantly, assess them and follow up and make sure they come in to see you if you're the doctor a few days or weeks after the death occurs. You want to make sure you understand, are they doing okay or in fact, are they at high risk of complex grief and they need to be referred to an effective counselor. Now I hope that what you can hear is that care in the last hours of life is complex. There are many important steps to help prepare, to help manage the dying process, and to look after the family afterwards. You and I as physicians, as advanced practice providers, social workers, nurses, pharmacists, we can't do this alone. It's a team affair. It's going to take input from everybody. You can hear there's a real science behind it. And what's most important is everybody's watching their own future. The family are watching their future, and you are too. And more than any other time during the experience of an advanced illness, everybody remembers those last hours of life. May you have great success, and may it be a magical time for gifts and wonderful memories for you as well. Great success with it. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.